Hey, Richard. Yeah, buddy. You know, our friend Troy Hunt seems to be everywhere lately. No kidding. Security breaches keep happening, and Have I Been Pwned is busier than ever. And now Troy is headlining two special NDC security shows. That's right. The folks that make the NDC conferences in Oslo, London, and Sydney are making two new shows. One on the Gold Coast, April 29th to May 1st, and the other in New York City, May 13th to 14th. Hey, that's my backyard. Mm-hmm. Well, the focus of both shows is security, of course. On the Gold Coast, there are workshops by Troy Hunt and Scott Helm, plus a one-day conference. And in New York, there are two workshops, one by Troy and the other by our friend Brock Allen. So if you want to up your security game in Australia, go to ndcsecurity.com.au to register. And if New York is more your speed, go to ndcsecuritynyc.com. And tell them Carl and Richard sent you. Excellent. This is a bunch of Vikings right here. <laughs> Seriously. We are in Lo- uh, London at the NDC in Westminster. And man, it's been a fun couple of days so far. We got a- another day to go. Yeah. What a great conference. Have we love this time. conference. Have it, yeah, there's a snow warning today. So we're about to see how London copes with snow. I mean, what could go wrong? Well, it couldn't be worse than Georgia. <laughs> yeah, or, or, or Dallas. I've seen Dallas, Dallas do that too. That's bad. Right. But anyway, uh, we started at NDC in 2008 in Oslo, and we've been coming every year mm-hmm. since then. Yeah. All, we've been chasing them all over the globe, yeah. Sydney. And we've been to all of London's, including the London. one. Well, we also went to the ones in the Excel Center, which I understand is not actually in London. Yeah. So it's like, it's that far east. It's pretty far. Yeah, but it's great to be here. It is great to be here, and you guys uh, are a great audience, and we're looking forward to spending the next hour with you with Christine Yen. But first, we have this little matter of a bit we call Better Know a Framework. Roll the music. <laughs> Okay, buddy, what do you got? Well, uh, I went spelunking in C-sharp 8 land, and I really like what I see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, yesterday was like the three nice men from C-sharp day. Yes. Right? Mad, <laughs> Mads and John and Bill. Yeah. And in case anyone's still living under a rock and hasn't heard, there's a, just a whole bunch of little nice features in C-sharp 8, and I won't focus on the big ones, but just one little one that made my day, which is implicitly scoped using statements. Yeah, mm, you like that? Cool. Bunch of heads nodding. Yeah, on so, our talk show. Excellent. So, so the, yes. it's, not, it's not really a problem, but when you do a using on an object and then you immediately have to have curly braces there and indent, and then everything, you have this new scope just for this using statement. Right. So if you have, you know, several disposable objects, you've got, now you're indenting so far that you it doesn't line up with the rest of your code, and nobody wants to indent 10 levels deep, right? At least with spaces. Tabs yeah. don't care, but well, tabs are evil. Well, in your case, you've got a monitor that stretches to uh, yeah, Toronto. The 43-inch, yeah. So yeah. I can handle a lot of indent. Right. But for the most, most of us, indenting causes problems just with being able to keep track of where code is and all that stuff. So... Uh, implicit scoping just means with whatever scope you're in, when you say using and a disposable object, you can do as many of them as you want without the curly braces, and they just go out of scope. When they go out of scope, they get disposed. Nice. It's, duh. It's like one of those things. Yeah. Yeah. Geez, I wish I should have 
Wish I had that long ago. Yeah. It's funny when those features actually appear, right? I yeah. Mean, version 8. Okay. Right. Yeah. Right. It's been a while. It's been a while. Awesome, so anyway, dude. that's my tip, my, my, my C-sharp tip of the day. Uh, Richard, is anybody talking to us today? There are people talking to us all the time, but I'm grabbing a comment off of show 1255, so that's a little while ago. Mm-hmm. And that's the one we did with Joe Godano when we were talking about Azure Application Insights. And I know mm. we're going to talk about instrumentation today, so I thought I would, and Christine's not been on the show before, I would have read a comment from your previous show. Mm-hmm. But you got to start somewhere. And so this is actually from February of 2016, so it's, it's a little while ago. But instrumentation being instrumentation. Mm-hmm. And this particular comment comes from John Corner, who says, and this is three years ago. Great show, guys. As a developer, whenever the question of how much data we need to do troubleshooting with, the answer is always more. Yes. It's kind of like how much memory SQL Server needs, right? Yeah. How much SQL Server needs? More. How much do you have? Yeah. However, there is a lot to consider in this topic, especially when it comes to privacy. Mm. Just because the technology exists to gather the data doesn't mean you have the right to it. With many of the European nations cracking down on Google and the Facebooks of the world, Mm. it's becoming very obvious that the tide is turning with regards to tracking data. While tools like App Insights and Raygun provide a lot of power, with that power comes a lot of responsibility. Before just slamming a tool like this into your applications and getting all the data, make sure you understand the long-term implications of the data you are gathering. Mm. And of course, I'm always thinking about instrumenting apps here, but it's very easy to pick up that the PII, that personal identifiable information in the process. Sure. Uh, this is definitely an interesting topic, and I'm curious to see how these tools evolve over the next few years to deal with the various legal requirements around the globe. And thanks, and keep the awesome shows coming. We will. Yeah, absolutely. And John, thank you so much for your comment. A copy of Music to Code By is on its way to you, and if you'd like a copy of Music to Code By, write a comment on the website at donetrocks.com or via Facebook. We publish every show there, and if you comment there and we read it on the show, we'll send you a copy of Music to Code By. And definitely follow us on Twitter. I'm at Carl Franklin. He's at Rich Campbell. Send us a tweet. We dispose of them properly. <laughs> okay, let's introduce our guest. Christine Yen is a co-founder at Honeycomb, which builds software for engineering teams to debug production systems. Christine has built systems and products at companies large and small and likes to have her fingers in as many pies as possible. Previously, she built Parse's analytics product and leveraged Facebook's data systems to expand it and wrote software at a few now-defunct startups. I love those now-defunct startups. <laughs> They're pretty great. The streets are littered with them. Nostalgia, it's, it's, it's real. Yeah. Welcome, Christine. Give her a hand. Now, I got to think John's comment was particularly relevant, knowing your background in, in getting into data. like The current controversies around Facebook, especially. You know, Oof. being careful with data. Being respectful with data, I think it's an interesting challenge. It's true. I think that there's um, a division. It, it depends on the application of uh, what you're doing with that instrumentation. Uh, certainly, if you're not careful, slurping a lot of PII, uh, and you're you're sort of sort of um, in hot water. But you know, there's there's things that you can do to be intelligent about whitelists or, or asking good. You know, what am I? What are the questions I really want to answer here? Mm-hmm. Where there's and there's a lot of good. Um, practices around anonymization, constant hashing. So you can mm. say, well, I'll take this email address. I don't need the email address. Right. But I want to know that this is a unique person that did these five things in a row. Yeah. Okay, well, I can still gather these insights about what my unique users are doing without running the risk of storing something 
I'll be in trouble for later. Mm -hmm. I mean, when we're in the UK, which for the moment, the GDPR still applies. We'll see what happens in May. Uh, But I'm also questioning this sort of good corporate governments over government regulation around responsibilities for data. Like I, you know, at least we're talking about the United States, which is a much more litigious place. You could actually see people suing the company over the behavior around data as opposed to what's happened in Europe with the set of legislations, which in my experience so far have not been enforced in a meaningful way. Like there hasn't been a big case of people, of organizations violating the GDPR and, and being pursued for that. There aren't too many people suing Facebook in the United States. That's just not a probably a very smart or money-wise uh, Not this week anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious about, you know, you're in the business of instrumentation. How do the tools really make it easy for us to, to do the right thing with data? Oh, well, to be, to be clear, the instrumentation that I'm dealing with day-to-day, especially building uh, Honeycomb, is mm-hmm. for operational data. Right. And there's so many uh, useful questions that we can still be answering just saying, hey, what are the sorts of requests coming in? Yeah. I don't care who's running them. I don't need to, I don't need to track. Geolocation matters, though. Sometimes. Yeah. But not all the time. Okay. Even just, hey, this request is coming from, uh, you know, this, the first block of the IP address. Yeah. Maybe that's enough. Mm. Which, which of my servers is it hitting? Mm-hmm. That's still enough. And there's, it's true that instrumentation can make it easier to capture things without thinking. Um, but I think that it's our responsibility as software engineers to always understand, uh, what the trade-offs of this thing I'm bringing in are, mm-hmm. um, and how to use it well. Yeah, being thoughtful about protecting people's personal information when you gather data, because you, I usually think folks that are just trying to understand why software isn't working as well as it should are prone, like John described, grab all the things. But hopefully, we have tooling that makes it easier to say some of these things not only are not necessary but are inappropriate. So it sounds like you're more into the telemetry of operational data, which means how can we improve the process? Right? Is that a fair assessment? That's certainly what um, the the product that we're selling deals with, mm-hmm. and that's honeycomb. Uh, and that's honeycomb. So give just give us the five minute pitch on honeycomb. Well, I'll give you the two minute pitch because I don't want to bore folks. Okay. Uh, honeycomb is for software engineers to understand what's happening with your production systems now. Okay. Um, and it's uh, we really find folks who come to us when their dashboards can't quite answer what they're looking for. You know, they see a spike and they're like, "But why?" Right. And, and we're, we're building a new tool to help folks uh, get the flexibility and power and speed that they would love to get out of their logs and existing mm. dashboards mm. and just can't because of the existing tools. So that's the sort of, you know, our, our customers usually use us for telemetry of their um, what's happening with their servers. I, uh, in being in sort of an engineering and product role, do look at a lot of product analytics mm-hmm. for mm. our users mm. to figure out, you know, how to, how to build things, what what they're building, or how, how to build things and uh, what use cases we're solving for. And for that, um, you know, the, we only have to solve the privacy issue for ourselves. Right. We're just, you know, we just have to think about what we're comfortable storing about our users, what we're comfortable being able to mine, uh, and, and where we might have to clean up uh, our, our data if if someone if someone requests it right so you look at it so you're looking at you you start with just basic logs and can figure out a whole bunch of stuff based on just patterns that you understand how customizable are these things and do your customers always understand what they can or should customize or 
or what data they may or may not be able to track? No. Yeah, I didn't think so. I think one of the one of the questions that we always ask them when kind of engaging in a uh, in, a, in a new account is, what are the problems you're trying to solve? Yeah, right. Because well, th- that w- that should be driving the data that you're capturing. What sure. questions do you want answers to? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, there's the class of data of just like how fast are things going? Are things reliable? You know, why do we get an unstable performance spike? Those those class of problem where the correct answer is always find it, fix it. And as long as those numbers ever get that high again, you're happy. Mm. Right. In some ways, those are kind of easy metrics. I mean, actually, diagnosing problems hard. You spend more time doing diagnostics. Once you've nailed it down, the fix is usually not that big of a deal. Exactly. Uh, Someone used the phrase uh, real-time forensics recently right. to describe what yeah. we try to enable. And, and that's absolutely true. It's the forensics of, I know something is wrong. And I know that when I find it, I, I'll be able to fix it. But how do I figure out when it's something is happening and where and for whom and under what conditions? And that's going to happen at all layers too, right? I mean, I mean, trying to instrument JavaScript, for example, under production when the problem only happens at a certain, you know, in a Peak certain load. condition. That's yeah. that's tough stuff. Can you imagine trying to solve the sorts of forensics problems? given all the different browser versions and all the extensions that someone might be have running, it's crazy. And, yeah. and the folks, you know, we, we talk to folks who try to use traditional dashboarding tools to solve these sort of front-end issues, and, mm. and they're just like, oh, we, we've just given up. We don't know. Right. Yeah, and often the, that sort of demographic data about what does the client machine look like, what is the version of the browser, what plugins are play, can narrow the scope dramatically. It's like this is only happening 2% of the cases, but it's in every case of this version of the browser on this operating system I've even mm. run into a case where it's like at this resolution of screen, yep. it had a problem. <laughs> yep. But once we knew that that was the consistent demo- demographic, like that was the, the, the one consistent pattern in this problem, then it's like, well, we have a chance of reproducing because we're now looking at, at that particular issue. I can imagine that the different versions of browsers is a problem, but it's become less of a problem since they all started updating every time you <laughs> reload them. But, you know, so you've got to be pretty like hardcore to have your chrome open through an entire update cycle or two and you know the answer is hey restart your browser right <laughs> this is this is true but uh having having tried to support a very complex javascript app um on firefox can still be a yeah quite a hassle yeah <laughs> sorry for any firefox users out there no, i use it the pain. I, I use it because my uh well chrome just sort of i don't know it just became Less joyful for me. It's fair. Yeah. Well, I mean, whose machine doesn't automatically start 30 copies of Chrome now? Sure. <laughs> I know. You look at the task manager sometimes. You guys want fun. Every single what time you, you said yes to notifications, that's another copy of Chrome. I love the example, though, of browser size and, and uh, browser version and all these things as examples of super useful identifying information that isn't mm-hmm. personal. Mm. Right, yeah. Right. It's absolutely helpful. Tra- tracking down a problem, it is absolutely, you know, people can get so creative about what are the sorts of things that would help me find an issue that yeah. have nothing to do with your email address or your IP address. No, sure. Yeah, and, I, and, I, and I, I do describe it as demographic data because it is a descriptor of the user. It's just not a personal descriptor of the user, mm. but it is aspects of how that application runs. And it's, it's only, it's just, all you're hearing is descriptions of a bleeding that I've done over the years, <laughs> finding these different things. I, one of the things I wanted to get into this show, and I think it was related to the talk you did earlier as well, is that is using this kind of telemetry to measure how new features are used and whether they're good. Do you ever get into that? All the time. Um, honestly, so 
I want to tell a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I just had coffee this afternoon with um, one of our customers over at Gecko Board, and they're a very data-driven company, so they have this culture already, always of let's let's test something out, experiment, see how it does. And they were describing um, wanting to build a new feature that they knew it was important, that they knew their customers were asking for, mm. uh, but not being sure what the right algorithm to use was. Right. Uh, they they knew what they wanted the end result to be. Uh, they knew they were solving essentially an NP-complete problem. And they were like, okay, we have a few different approaches we'll implement. And what they did was they implemented all, you know, they, they implemented... Turns out writing the code's not the hard part. Right. Doing the right thing's the hard part. Right. <laughs> and so they're able to run all of them in parallel, throw away the results bef- uh, after sending it to Honeycomb. Right. And so they were able to, in real time, in very, like, very descriptive visualizations, find out, okay, well, how would algorithm A have performed versus B? Are we happy with that? Would our customers be happy with that? Mm, right. Uh, and there's there's so many things that you can do to help drive the decision of how do I want to do this? Were they running all the algorithms on each of, of a given request? So it's like, this is the one request. Here's four versions of the algorithm executed on it. I think they were. That's really interesting. Wow. Yeah. Nice. It's like it's 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 a form of A/B testing, but it's an A/B testing of uh, in a really really detailed way. That mm-hmm. uh, you know would be. Awesome but also very have. internal, right? Like you're not a really. I've certainly run into this with some software, especially stuff like recommendation engines, where it's like we've deployed it, but we didn't show it to the user. But we used the user data yep. to see what it, how it would behave. And the big thing we were looking at, because we no way we ever found to make a recommendation engine that didn't have significant overhead, is how much more gear, and that's get sense of how old this was, it was pre-cloud, how much more gear we're going to need to buy and still be able to maintain performance. Hmm. Right, it's, and it's nobody was angry at the developers that this had overhead. It had overhead, but it was being able to test it in the field and know the real numbers before we deployed, so that we could scale up sufficiently, so that the day it did roll out, we didn't tip the site over. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, they this idea of we test benchmarking your new features against live operations. And, uh, on some subset of the current executing set, and then mm. sort of looking at them, I think it's a very interesting way to think. It's all about the telemetry, though. Like, how do you measure which one is better? Is it just speed? Uh, in that case, they had they had their own uh, goals, and I think the important part always for these experiments is defining your me- your measure of success first. Sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Otherwise, you're just gathering data, and you're mm-hmm. like, well, I guess I'll sift through it later. Um, but I mean, the best experiments, there's a reason we have the scientific method. You come yeah. up with a hypothesis first. You're like, this is, this is what I want to find out about this. Mm-hmm. And then you run the experiment and then you, and then you can move on. There's a real strong psychological aspect to the, uh, to the, the hypothesis methods as well, which is we are not presuming an outcome mm-hmm. per se. We're saying these are the metrics we believe are important. You know, and we're hoping one of these will, will be significant one way or the other. Right. And you don't know which one's going to return the best numbers. Absolutely. You just got to try and agree that like these are the things we want to measure. So what uh, layers and technologies does Honeycomb have telemetry for? I mean, there's so many things that you could be measuring all the way from a, a SQL server or a database of any kind to, uh, you know, all the way down to the, to the browser. Right now, we focus primarily on the application layer. Okay. Um, and honestly, we have uh, we are still building up our library of, of all the different integrations we can provide. But we started out by giving the the developers the more more freedom because mm-hmm. ultimately, you know what your software is trying to do. You know the things that are interesting, mm. and so we want to give people the flexibility to say, well, today I care about screen size. I care about how fast this rendered. I care about 
what other ex extensions or feature flags they had enabled when they mm -hmm. were experiencing this. And so you're deploying code into the app to be part of the telemetry process? So these are libraries that we have to our to the product? Yes, we have, uh, there are libraries that right. you can use to build up events and then emit them to Honeycomb. Because, I mean, you know, the comment I read was about App Insights, which is sort of an right. external tool that, that, that Azure provides. But, you know, for me, when I wear my IT hat, like, that's great telemetry for me because it talks more in terms of outside of the app. Mm. The internal app telemetry is a very different creature. I mean, it's, developers have to sort of decide what are we measuring here. Ah, I think uh, maybe our definition of in-app and external to app um, are... I don't think we think. I don't think I think about that quite as uh, with a quite as clear of a dividing line. Okay. okay. Ultimately, if you're an, if you're an app developer, you're 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 a developer on the business <laughs> logic of your application. Um, you could be capturing insights about how people are using your application, as well as internal things like um, you know memory usage or mm. um, you know, something else about the actual operation yeah. of the app. Although a lot of those things are getting externally measurable, right? Right. In a Runtime language like .NET is very easy for us to intercept at each calling stack mm -hmm. point and say, I don't need to know anything about a given call to know when that call began and when it ended. And so, you know, I can get good telemetry on that. Mm -hmm. Or as soon as I get a developer involved, they could actually choose to drop data points within an execution block. That would be, I mean, I don't know of any other way you could pull that off. Well, and hopefully you'd be able to keep that code out of the way, you know, using AOP or, or sort of attaching outside uh, in a sidecar, in a, in a container, that kind of thing, so that uh, so it doesn't impact the development process too much. That'd be ideal. Is, and it, is that where you guys live in that world too? Or? We would ideally live at the AOP layer, um, but there are things that, that, are, that live in the logic of your app, um, which, you know, if you're a platform, which customer this is. Mm -hmm. um, if you're, um, you know, a retailer, which, which, say you're a company like Shopify, which uh, storefront right. the request is being yeah. is, is in. These are things that are often necessary for tracking down a problem or, or localizing, you know, debugging the issue yeah. that are only going to be inside the application that can't be, you know, slurped out automatically by something like App Insights. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I appreciate that. It's like intentional metrics as opposed to, I'm not going to say arbitrary metrics, but metrics from the perimeter, yeah. really, yeah. as opposed to we're digging into And things, things that you can turn on and turn off yeah. you know, from a single switch. Mm -hmm. Yeah, once we get into that sort of DevOpsy, we got a bunch of feature flags here, and we're going to experiment with different versions, which all of that stuff I love, but I think it's m a lot of more work to make sure you instrument that well. Mm. It can be. Probably worthwhile. Yeah. So here's an activity I used to do when I, back when I did real work, which admittedly was a while ago. <laughs> We'd ship a new version of the app, and I would spend the next two weeks after the app went out the door studying log files. And I was really looking for two things. First is, the new feature that we built, is anybody using it? Mm -hmm. And second is, is that new feature killing us? Like on more than one occasion, we'd had the experience where we shipped out a feature, people really liked it, but it stressed the system so much it literally tipped it over. Mm. But it had been telling us in log files for days that it was going to do that. Mm -hmm. We just weren't looking. And you only have to, you know, when you're responsible, you only get burned by that once. And you're like, we should look. Mm. Right? But I also found for me as a leader of a team, when I could write up a report two weeks after we shipped a version and said, hey, remember that great thing that we pitched so hard on making? We got it out the door on this day. This many people have used it this many times. Like sort of having an impact report on a new feature that 
wasn't anecdotal. It was actually an analysis of here's how this new feature got used. And I just don't know how many folks do that. And, it, you know, and I would hope that the new tooling, the type of stuff you guys build, would make that easier. I think that more, more and more folks are doing that as data-driven cultures and data-driven engineering teams are becoming more vocal and more widespread. Um, and I, I almost hesitate to say this because we're in a crowd of engineers, but I feel like like product managers almost talk about this more than engineers. I, I would totally agree because ultimately you are measured on you if you and should be measured on utilization. And I think yep. often in, in development, mm -hmm. it's like once I've shipped it, I kind of don't want to think about it anymore. I'm working on the next thing. Yep. Right. right. We just want to write code. Right. <laughs> just leave me alone. Yeah. Okay. I'll put that line of code in there to measure your stuff. But, but I mean, one of the reasons I got good at getting more money for my team was being able to show the value of what my team built. Mm. Absolutely. And so I got sort of pulled Critical. into writing those stories of why our features were great. So that when I turned around and said, we want to build this, and this is the kind of value we think we're going to bring to it, I could get the money. I could get additional team members. One of the things that we always try to do at the start of any of our projects is define the success metrics at the end of it. Sure. Those are almost always, uh, you know, from the perspective of we're going to, we're going to build this thing. It's almost always we want uh, these many people to use it. We want this to, we're building this because, I think we, because we think it's correlated with, or it'll drive engagement, or it'll drive um, adoption inside this organization. So uh, we want to see these not go down for, mm -hmm. the, for folks who are active with this feature. Right. Um, and there's so many things that you can do to know that, okay, this thing that we shipped, did it solve a problem? Yeah. Or did we flub it? Well, you know, one of the most dreadful things is two weeks into a sh feature ship that nobody's touched it. Yep. Like it's just, and, and then you're just like, well, why? Mm -hmm. Like, does she do the analysis? Of, does nobody know it's there? Oh, we didn't actually turn it on? Here's a good reason. <laughs> like, like, I've had those experiences where it's like, if you're not watching that thing, boy, talk about messing up with your value. We spent six weeks developing that feature and nobody touched it. Yep. And Christine, uh, I got to interrupt for just a moment for this very important message. Hey, Carl here. So we're at one show per week until further notice. I'm sure that's a relief for some of you, but uh, for others, that's just not enough. Well, the only way we can get back to two shows a week is if we significantly increase our Patreon pledges. That's just the way it goes. So think about becoming a .NET Rocks patron, like Josh Ralstead. Thanks, Josh. Make a pledge today at patreon.netrocks.com. And thanks. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell with Carl Franklin. We're here yeah. at NDC London. <laughs> and we just had a great commercial break. Yeah, we did. <laughs> and everybody just saw a little more sausage being made. That's right. And we're here with Christine Yen talking a little bit about instrumentation and about this idea of really measuring the effects of new features and value. Because the other aspect of this is when they're not using or they're using it sufficiently, like is it a good time to go back as a product manager and say, how do we make this better? Uh, I've we, we actually saw this Gabriel Torak show we yep, did where right. they were instrumenting mobile apps and showing that some features were just too hard to use. They started tracking the time click to click through a feature stream, which that's really interesting instrumentation saying, wow, it's taking a long time and a lot more clicks than we thought for using this feature. I just recently learned of a JavaScript library that uses the webcam to track your eye movement. And yeah. how cool is that for, I mean, first of all, you got to convince your user, hey, we'd like to track your eye movement while you use our, you know, while you order uh, some salami from salami.com or whatever. 
that is the challenge. But if you can get people in a focus group, perhaps, maybe to just use your application, there's some telemetry right there. You can find out where they're looking, why they can't find the buy button, you know. I'm pretty sure there's a whole startups around that, around that topic. Screen blindness is a really interesting phenomenon, right? I've yeah. certainly seen most people are now trained to look at nothing on the right side of a web page. <laughs> like, you just right. don't even see it. Well, we battle this on our website. It's like do. putting up a thing about, you know, sign up for this or do something. You put it on the right, nobody clicks on it. And guess where all the ads are on our show, on yeah. our site? On the right. Yeah. Still. Still. They are. Not the, we're not saying we're not aware of it. We just don't care. <laughs> the good part about tracking something and knowing no, no one is using it is knowing also when you can deprecate something. Right. Mm. Turn right. a feature off. Favorite thing to do, removing yeah. code. Mm. See, I used to do that with a different kind of instrumentation. I would shut it off and wait for the screams. <laughs> you hear screams? Okay, I'll turn it back on. So, sorry. Sorry. It's when sorry. you want the phone to ring. Yeah. Just turn the server Feel a little lonely. <laughs> yeah. That's the nature of IT, right? Because you do your yeah. job perfectly. Nobody could tell. Shut a server off. Everybody could tell. Yeah. It's like, hey, good to hear from you. <laughs> Try it again. Do you run into customers now that are at the point where they're like, they are looking at the telemetry of utilization to shape next features or to make that kind of, of feature thinking? I think that that shaping next features is a little bit more in the realm of product and I think that that is less of a common use case for Honeycomb right mm -hmm. now. I mean, it's just an interesting idea of, mm -hmm. like, we, telemetry is typically for IT. Are we up? Are we down? Are we fast? Somewhat for dev, stuff being used. Is it working the way expected? Why is it, why is it erratic? How are we debugging it? But telemetry for product managers. Well, you know, it's an iterative process, right? So you put something out there, you test it out, and you get the telemetry back, and you get informed by that. And maybe sometimes the, inform the information says, oh, this feature has to change, or we need another feature that does this because that didn't work. So I can see that happening. You know, the delightful thing about telemetry for product managers mm. is that they can often use the same telemetry that developers are using. Sure. Hey, we just shipped this feature. Um, is this endpoint getting hit? Right. Yeah. That's certainly a sign that's, mm. that's, that people care. Um, and, and I feel like the, the role that if not telemetry and instrumentation, but at least data, data can tell you is, um, how, you know, uh, I feel like in, when you're building features, the question is never, what do we build? Because everyone has ideas about what sure. could be built. It's mm. how do we prioritize yeah. this? And, and what data can tell you and how data can inform that is, well, between these two features, maybe one is targeted for power users, one is targeted more for uh, getting folks... Novice back. users, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. around. Um, you can then look at your telemetry, you can look at your analytics and say, well, wh where do we want to focus right now? Sure. Mm -hmm. Of the folks in this surface area, are more of them, product, are, are more of them power users? Do we, if they are, are they using it in a way that we're excited about? Right. Cool, yes, okay, let's invest in this power user feature. So the difference between like using a mouse and caring about tool tips because you're a novice versus I know all the shortcut keys. Mm. Like we could measure that and say, hey, this many people are using shortcut keys. We pretty much should put them in the expert classes. They even know those. There's probably some fairly experienced users who don't even know the keys. Definitely. Uh, yeah, that's an, it, I also like this idea of not asking someone, are you an expert, are you a novice, but rather looking at their behavior and saying, can you categorize them that way? Hmm. Looking at data to back up qualitative uh, information is yeah. my favorite thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Have, and this is, this is the, um, uh, the unflattering way to put it is everyone lies. The flattering way to put it is some people want, you know, they, they ask for the faster horse because they don't know that you're going to build a car. Sure. And um, 
looking at their usage patterns, looking at what their what parts of your product or what, what parts of your tool that they're, they've used and are familiar with helps you understand where they're coming from mm-hmm. and helps you make those decisions. How seriously do I take this feedback? Yeah. Sure. Well, and you want to believe that we have vision around our software in the first place, that going in that particular direction. But I, I kind of like the idea of the visionary of a piece of software, also breaking that down into a series of hypotheses that we could then test with telemetry mm-hmm. and say, you believe that people want to do X. We've built these things this far. This is what they're actually doing with it. What's the biggest thing most people miss, do wrong, or don't do, or do when they shouldn't? I think that people think of instrumentation as this giant hurdle. They have to get right or spend a bunch of time um, building up. And instead, and you know, and then and then once it's done, they put it on a shelf and they're like, great, we've got everything instrumented, we're done. Mm. And it, it, that's such a that's such a high bar to set for yourself that lots of people are like, oh, okay, well, that's nice, but I I can't do it. I don't have time. I've got right. I've got other fires burning over here. Right. And instead Instrumentation is something that should be um, it should be as much a part of writing code as documentation and testing. It's how you know that your code is still doing what it should be doing after the test phase, right. and it, it's something that evolves with your code. Right. So people, you know, the same way you don't write all of your tests up front. You write some tests up front, but you don't do all of them. You, write a, you add a little bit of instrumentation in order to s- answer the questions that you have. Don't worry about the questions you'll have tomorrow. Right. Yeah. That's. Sage advice right there. Don't try to predict the future. But also to sort of get in the mindset of I don't build a feature that I can't measure the results of. Mm. Yeah. Right. So that we, otherwise, well, how do we know that we're building anything relevant? Hmm. So the telemetry's just got to be part of that. It's the only real agnostic feedback mechanism. It's got the, the least amount of bias. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. It's, it's fascinating to me to, to sort of think through that and think how different software can be. A lot less guessing that you're building the right thing and a lot more measuring. Although when it goes wrong, there's you're still going to be plenty to debate about why it's not what you expected. You don't automatically get an answer to all mm. of those questions. Mm-hmm. One of my favorite things that we do um, is we we use Honeycomb and we instrument from essentially a product perspective and, and we're we're tracking user interactions with our UI. Mm-hmm. So we'll we'll notice, you know, okay, they open this dialogue and then do they hit cancel or do they hit okay? Yeah. They do yeah. the action. Right. And and by by looking at that and by comparing trends, by uh, being able to break down by, okay, well, we'll filter out these users and we'll filter in these users, um, you can start to understand where folks drop off and, mm. and what they're what they're running into. Okay, if they're not completing the action, did they even find it? Yeah. Richard was talking about designing and having designers having intuition versus data, and how does that play? into uh, telemetry? I love, uh, the, the two play off of each other so well, right? Because when you're, when you're building something, when you're, um, when you're, when you're picking which features to add, um, there's gotta be a vision. There's gotta mm-hmm. be someone who sees far in the future, lots of, past the things you haven't built yet, mm-hmm. um, guiding folks in that direction. But even after you've said, okay, we want to build the ability to do this, there's so much, there's so much fleshing out and shaping mm-hmm. that, that needs to happen. And yeah. so a designer can say, okay, well, it should look like this. And then an engineer or a product manager, whatever, someone, someone very data oriented can go, okay, well, um, let's look at what people are currently doing. Let's, you know, okay, you have, you have this text field. Mm. How long are the, are the text fields people are current? How long are the strings that people are currently sending? Mm. Okay. You want to support this flow. 
Is this something that we want to support? And it can be hard because ultimately you can only measure what you have. Right. Yeah. Right. And so, so there is a natural confirmation bias there. There's a natural mm. confirmation bias. And so sometimes intuition has to override data. Sure. Oh, well, no one's using this. Well, that's because it's crappy. But how would you know when intuition is correct unless you had intuition? <laughs> oh, don't get all curses on me. This is what happens when you do functional programming shows before we talk about design. <laughs> well, you know, it, it reminds me of um, the guys who uh, invented Ren and Stimpy. They were interviewed by uh, um, a radio station, and it was after they had just gone viral, right, back in the TV days. And um, he said that the, the producers wanted to know they wanted to do these focus groups with kids, so they spent like $200,000 to bring in all these kids and showed them different things, and uh, basically they confirmed what the artists knew all along, that kids like butt jokes. <laughs> $200,000 to tell me that a kid likes butt jokes, right? So some things are blatantly obvious, but other things are subtle and, and not so obvious. So the the question is real, I mean... How does how does your engineer person know when to sort of cede the the battle to the to the intuitives and say, "I'll go along with your gut instinct"? I will say first uh, that sometimes I think we all have to accept that sometimes we're wrong. Right. Yeah. Sometimes intuition is wrong. Sometimes the data lies to us. Hmm. But when it comes to ceding to someone else's intuition. Ultimately, it's a leap of faith, right? right. Uh, it's a leap of faith, and, and sometimes it's, I will believe you, but then I will measure it. Yeah, measure sure. it. And then I will exactly. make sure that I, I not to make the mistake, same mistake again if you're wrong this time. Yeah, yeah. That's it. That's the answer. Again, we, I think we said this earlier, and I hope people agree. It's like, code's relatively cheap. I think you can spend more time arguing about a feature than it takes to code both versions, mm. get it out there, and try it. I have had the experience with a, with an extraordinary developer, a guy like Kent Alstead or something, where there's like four of us in a room arguing over a feature, and he's sitting at the end of the table and just he's done. Yeah, yeah, but I, we were finished the argument when he pulled out the USB key and said, shall we take them <laughs> both out for a spin? I've been that guy. <laughs> I used to make everybody mad. because Just, just like, write the code. Hey, try this. Yeah. Let's yeah. just write the code. But I also think that could be really fun, right? It's a little less conjecture and, and theorizing and, and debate and more... Let's go collect data yeah. by, by having the tool to do it. I love uh, the cultural change that can happen when mm. you when you shift into uh, being willing to experiment more. Mm -hmm. People's egos get less tied up in it. It's okay. Well, let's try it, and let's not pour too much um, too much angst into it. But let's mm. try it a little bit and and see where where we go. Yeah. Let's see mm -hmm. what happens. Yeah. See which one actually works out. And and again, if you decide those metrics and things ahead of time, then I think it also sucks more ego out of it. That mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. like, well, this is what the number said. I do like instrumentation tools, especially ones around capturing uh, errors and things, because the effect of looking at, an, a con at a detailed error message from a reporting tool means there's nobody typed it out. Mm. It's not a bug report anymore. This came from production. We can hate production. <laughs> we don't want to hate people like the person who wrote up the bug report. Right. So it's like, it almost externalizes it when you can have data like that. So that we're all on the same side of a problem, looking at the data going, wow, how did that happen? Well, who is the idiot that wrote this report? <laughs> well, it's and always, developed it. it's that, it's, it's also, it's the thing that helps you get past someone writing, your service isn't working. Yeah. Right? Like, okay, okay. How is it not working? Why is it not working? What, give me something to work with. And when you have, when you have, when you can pair that with, 
okay, well, this is, this is, these are the requests that were associated with this user. This is how they failed. These are the things that were turned on along the way. You're like, oh, okay, now, now I have a better view of reality. And it's, it's the qualitative and the quantitative having to work together. Sure. I told the story on .NET Rocks before, but I'll tell it to this audience because it was years ago. I had a customer and it was a web app and, and I had been coding until three o'clock in the morning and I finally just went to sleep and there wasn't any dev test stage. I mean, it was live on the metal and he liked to show people the site while I was in the middle of developing. So nine o'clock in the morning and I'm barely awake. He calls me and he says, I go, what's up? He goes, Carl, it doesn't work. And I said, can you be a little more explicit? It's nine o'clock in the morning. He goes, it doesn't work. (laughs) (laughs) That's more explicit. Gee, thanks. (laughs) I'll get right on that. Yeah. You'll want a little more measurement than that. Yeah. A little bit more information than that. I also look at this as sort of two ways to slice data. Like you were describing a scenario type slice where it's like, here's the activity of a given user and all of the steps they took. Mm -hmm. So that horizontal slice through the system. Because most instrumentation in my mind tends to be very vertical. Here is the Mm. average request time for this service. Mm. Here is the, uh, you know, the, 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 and here is like the worst and here's the best. Like those kinds of things that say, you know, sort of the instability of a given service. But that's a very different measurement from a user's experience. That's true. and my, my thesis is that good data tools let you do both right. on the same data, right? If you, especially if you, you, you have the data in, in the horizontal state, it's 2019, we have all this great software, all these, all these great approximation algorithms or, or, you know, analytical engines. We can calculate mm. the best or the worst sure. off of that raw data mm. fast, real time, uh, with whatever kind of specificity we want today. So we should be able to do both yeah. because it depends as always on the question that we're asking. Do right. we want to find outliers? Then ask, ask the, you know, the sorts of questions that'll let us pull out outliers. Do we care about something specific? Then we look there. Mm. Are you starting to experiment on the machine learning side with having tools that help us derive more information from this data? Oh, um, no to the first, yes to the latter. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, I am, I am, um, I'm from, I am in, from Silicon Valley. Uh, my knee jerk reaction to, the term machine learning is ah, you just wanted some fairy dust on your application. Yes. Right, Can I right. squirt this with AI fairy dust and it will be worth more? Yes. <laughs> so uh, you know, for the latter part, there are always um, really cool statistical things that people can that we can do to help folks figure out that first question of something is wrong. Where do I look? Right. Mm. Um, something we built recently with um, Danielle Fisher actually joined us recently from mm-hmm. Microsoft Research, um, and one of the one of the features he worked on. Um, this fall was precisely that, mm. you know, okay, I've got, I've got, I'm mapping the distribution of latencies, or I'm mapping some sort of distribution and I can see there's some, some strange artifact in the corner. <coughs> uh, latency has gone up and I don't know why. What? Why? Right? That, mm. that's, the, that's the, that's the question that happens all the time when you're staring at a dashboard and scratching your head. And, um, this is a great example of data versus intuition mm-hmm. because the interaction that he wanted was being able to look at this heat map and circle those points and say, what might be causing this, right? Of, of all of these attributes that we're capturing, which attribute is correlated with this increase? Like where, where, how can I start isolating the cause of this? Mm. But the problem was that that heat map visualization, judging by the data, 
was something not, 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 that not everyone used. Right. It was something that um, some folks had trouble reading. They liked the line graphs. They didn't want to see the whole distribution of um, over time. But Danielle was like, okay, we, this is still the right place to start. First, because it's the pl- place where statistically we can, uh, it's easiest to uh, highlight a particular region of the heat map. But also because the value of what we can provide, mm. if we start with this and we enable this interaction, will be so much higher and will actually go back and drive usage of this particular visualization. Right. And we built it, we released it as an experiment, and we saw that it did. In fact, more people were using the initial visualization and getting value out of it, that it was, became this virtuous cycle that we wouldn't have been able to get past if we'd simply said, ah, well, people aren't using this visualization enough. They won't get value out of it. We can't build Stop it. working on it. Right. right. As a, I, so the intuition is really like, we're not doing a good enough job providing value in that visualization mm-hmm. yet. Yeah. Which I think it's a harder thing to say. It's way easier to blame the customer for being incompetent. <laughs> and the thing is, we, we, you know, especially in the data space, we know, uh, you know, judging from the keynote, this, or from the keynote, Yesterday, mm-hmm. we're drowning in data. Sure, there's never a problem. There's often not a problem of I, I need more data. It's right. how do I start working with this data? And yeah. so the more that tools can start to nudge you in the right direction and say, hey, something something interesting is over here, and this this one attribute seems like you might want to dig into it a little bit more. That's that's the role that good tools can right. play. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to do machine learning for that. Straight up, good old fashioned stats will help you there too. Are you a fan of R? Uh, I've heard enough horror stories from folks who have scars from R um, that I can't say that I'm a fan, but I'm a fan of what R has enabled the industry to do. Mm-hmm. I love the, the sorts of uh, conclusions and research and, and the culture that R has driven by just asking folks to look at data and understand it. Yeah. Well, Christine, thank you very much for joining us this hour. It's been enlightening. Thanks for having me. Hey, let's give it up for Christine Yan. And we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks! .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Plop Studios a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a-